If you've got your Bibles, um, go ahead, if you would, and open up to a psalm. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. We're going to be there in just a second. I'm glad you guys are here tonight. Uh, you know, Ron had asked me several weeks ago if, if I would be open to teaching um, one evening on parenting. Um, and uh, I, I'm not 50, and I, I don't have, you know, three kids that have made it through the teenage years yet and, uh, and gone through all the stuff that teenage kids go through. Um, I have a son, he's, he's going to be eight in October, um, and so I have a little experience in parenting, and I'm about a third of the way through that experience. Um, but I think one of the reasons uh, Ron asked me to do this is because what I like to do a lot of times is uh, I'm not going to necessarily talk about the operations of parenting, um, you know, where you say, I've got a 15-year-old daughter, and she likes this boy, and he's whatever. Uh, what I want to talk about is the philosophy of parenting. Uh, that's what's important here, because the philosophy of parenting is true for any age, whether uh, the child is a toddler or a teenager, because uh, people are really people. And as uh, Mark Twain once said, um, all adults are overgrown children. Um, we've got the same tendencies that children do. We just manage them differently and with more expensive gadgets. Um, children are selfish. We're selfish. Children demand their rights. Uh, we demand our rights. Children stomp their feet when they don't get what they want. Uh, we go on a shopping spree when we don't get what we want. Um, there's very few things that a child does that is not a mirrored reflection of us. And it is only when we begin to recognize that mirrored reflection of children and adults that we can begin to appreciate uh, where the heart of our child is, because a lot of times we're in exactly the same place. It just looks a little different, and it's a little more sophisticated because, because we're adults. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to mainly focus on two major aspects of what parenting is about. Does everyone have a sheet copy of the notes? Anyone not have one? If you don't, we've got some in the back. If you don't have the notes, just put your hand up, and we'll get one to you. Um, I just gave them to you right up front on the notes. The number, the number one thing we're going to talk about is uh, parenting is, number one, the process of preparing your children to leave the home. That's really the bottom line. Uh, the earliest prescription that we have from God is the leave and cleave passage, that it is the goal of, of all of us at some point to leave our mother and fathers and to cleave to another unit, in that case, a marital unit, but ultimately to leave and that's the goal of parenting, is I've been given a window of about 18 years, and for some of you, maybe 30, uh, with some of your kids. Um, I've got about 18 years to do what I can do to allow my child to have the skills and the tools to become a relatively autonomous person, to begin making choices in the way that they're going to move forward in their life as responsibly as possible. And that's the goal. Uh, and we're going to look at a psalm here in just a minute that's going to talk about that. And the other thing I'm going to focus on tonight, and this is a major part of it, and I'm absolutely convinced of this. It's the process whereby the transformation of the parent is what's fundamental, uh, and the transformation of the child is secondary. And what we're going to talk about there is that uh, parenting is more about uh, God transforming us as adults into the image of his son 
Uh, and God is more concerned with that than he is with, with us wanting to transform our children into some desired image that we think they ought to be. See, the, 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 the role of the, the goal of the process in God's mind is I'm going to take that little girl or that little boy or those little kids that I've given that couple and I'm going to use those kids to do a work of great transformation. And I'm convinced that the child that you have, the child that I have, the children that you have, those are divinely sent to you with the temperaments and the attitudes and the behaviors and the challenges that they have because they are tailor-made for your heart and for your issues and for your problems and for your impatience and for all those things that keep you from looking like Christ. Now, I could say that uh, about marriage as well. I could say, look to the person on your left and right and welcome the greatest divine chisel God could give you right there. See, and it's the same for children. That uh, is Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Parenting. And if you haven't read any really great books on on parenting, uh, I would highly recommend that one. In my opinion, I think that is by far one of the best. It's called Sacred Parenting. Um, He wrote a book before that called Sacred Marriage. Anybody read that? Sacred Marriage? Okay, read that one first. Uh, Sacred Marriage, the whole uh, purpose of that book is, what if God designed marriage to make you holy rather than happy? That's the whole mode of his book. Sacred Parenting essentially is the same idea. What if God gave you the children that you have to make you holy rather than to make you comfortable? See, and a lot of times parenting becomes doing what I have to do with my kids to provide as much comfort and quiet and peace in my life because that's the issue. And so the way I discipline, the way I set up rules, the structures I set up in my home are really ultimately about my peace and my quiet and my comfort and not necessarily about how has this child been given to me to conform me into the image of Christ. See? And it's a radical difference. When you can really begin to embrace that mentality, suddenly the struggles and the trials and the difficulties begin to look differently. Um, I remember Cooper was, um, he was a colicky child. Just in a, if any of you have had a colicky child, you know the challenges of that. And, uh, and I, I just remember all those sleepless nights of, of Cooper all of the separation anxiety that he went and the screaming and the crying and all of that, thinking that there was something wrong with my kid and, uh, and realizing as I began to study about parenting and studying God's word and talking to people that were wiser than me in parenting, I began to realize that the only way that I was going to make it through that season was by recognizing that this is a season of life for me at that time that was going to stretch my patience in a way that nothing else would except my marriage. Um, but that's what it was. It was a season of life that was an opportunity for my growth. See, it wasn't something that was going to be something that was going to detract from me. It was something that was going to be an additive thing to my life if I allowed it to do what it had the potential to do. So those are the two things we're going to pretty much look for. Um, and I'm glad we're, we're doing this because I've been kind of in the Christian circles here long enough. And I get a chance to do all kinds of talks and speak all over the place. Um, probably, I'd say, year-round, I probably get to speak to between five to 7,000 teenagers and 
youth a year. It's just about 20% of my speaking I do to young people. And I get to watch the young kids and watch the students and talk to uh, just to a bunch of them about where they are. And I get to talk to parents. And I get emails like crazy uh, about you know, their kids and this and that. And so I, I really get an inside scoop across the board about what a lot of the problems are that parents are facing with, with kids. Uh, and one thing I've noticed, uh, and I want this, this is going to be a little bit interactive, so feel free at any point, guys, to raise your hand or to make a comment along the way. But one of the things I realized is that um, for most of us here who attend an evangelical church, for instance, a rock point or some church around here that's kind of an evangelical church, the philosophy of parenting, unfortunately, is driven by fear a lot of times. That there is a fear of the world. There's a fear of influences on our kids. Uh, and because of that fear, it, it makes us look weird sometimes. The way that we um, begin to try to accommodate or try to offset some of those things that we're afraid of. Um, just yesterday, I got a phone call yesterday, and it's a dad who, their daughter just turned 16, and he called me, and he just said, you know, I know you don't, your, kid, your son isn't a teenager yet, but I just want to ask your opinion about something. Um, my daughter just turned 16, and we always told her when she was 16, we'd let her go out on her first date. And we never really thought that would happen. <laughs> and uh, surprise, she's 16, and the first thing that she said is, I can't wait to go on a date. That was what she was, that was on her mind all throughout her 15th year. <laughs> I can't wait till I turn 16. And that she couldn't wait to go on her first date. And, and I, I asked him, I said, well, did you ask her if there was somebody that, you know, there's of interest of somebody? He goes, oh, absolutely. There's three or four different boys that, you know, are text messaging her. And I said, hold on, hold on, text messaging. Let's stop right there for a minute. And so we, we talked about that. And I said, what is it that is most, I said, what do you feel the most right now? And he was dead honest, and I so appreciate it. He said, I'm afraid. And I said, what are you afraid of? He said, I'm afraid that my girl, is, my daughter, is going to make some bad choices and something real bad is going to happen to her. And that whole conversation was so fear-laden. And I understand that. I do understand the sense of what he's talking about. But it was so driven by fear that whenever I began to ask him, well, what are some of the things you and your wife have talked about as far as how you're going to manage this? Over almost everything he said was reactive and driven by fear. And wasn't really driven by something that's, uh, that's more, uh, not just positive, but something that's more constructive with his daughter. Um, and what I told him basically was that every person in life, adult or child alike, the issue comes down to the heart. Would you guys agree with that? It comes down to the heart. And what we try to do too many times is we try to conform behavior. And so we end up becoming, in the sense, Christian behaviorists. If I can get my kids to behave and act a certain way, uh, then I am a successful parent because my kid has never dot, dot, dot. My child does not dot, dot, dot like all these other kids. And therefore, I'm a successful parent because my kid has not. See? And, and I would venture to say that I'm thankful that your son or daughter has not dot, dot, dot. All right? But that does not mean that you've been successful. 
because you very well could have not even touched one iota of the heart of that child to really create in that child the soil for good critical choices when they finally get on their own, which for this guy was going to be in two years. And she's gone, see. And so um, I thought about this fear-based philosophy, and and I wanted to throw that out for just a moment before we get into this. Um, You may even disagree with me on that, but I I, I really feel like I see a lot of fear of that. What are some of those things that you guys sense um, that we fear for our kids? What are some of those things? What's that? Drugs. Okay, yeah, drugs, absolutely. The peer pressure to do drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, peer pressure. Um, what else? Promiscuity. Absolutely, yeah. Um, levels of promiscuity, unfortunately, are just really just growing like crazy now. It's, it's the kid's way of attaching to one another. Um, what else do we fear? What's that? Unwanted pregnancies, absolutely, sure. If you have a daughter, that's certainly something that's a big fear. If you have a son, certainly on the other end of that, that would be a big fear. Okay, yeah, something that is not just a short-term consequence, but for the rest of their life, this will be something they bear. Yeah. Now, all of those things that we just shared, um, which of those does not exist in the adult years? I mean, don't all of those exist in the adult years? Married or not, all of those choices, all of those pressures, drugs, uh, promiscuity, all of those things exist as adults. There's nothing unique to the pressures of a child. It just looks different, see? Um, and so what I want to suggest tonight is that as we, as we begin this process or we're in the middle of it, uh, of parenting, is to approach it differently. And that is that I'm going to approach parenting by looking at what it's doing to my heart, and doing all that I can to create a soil for my child to grow, but leaving all of the results and the outcomes up to the Lord. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've, a lot of times we try so hard to keep our kids from the very things that we did that drove us to the Lord. Isn't that ironic? I mean, I look at some of the bumbling, dumb decisions I made that were all incremental steps to me finally saying, I give up, Lord, I'm yours. And had I not done those bumbling, dumb decisions along the way, who knows how long I would have walked around in my self-righteousness and my lack of knowledge of God. See, Uh, I know that my son, Cooper, is going to make some bumbling decisions along the way. And I'm going to pray that they're minimal. But whatever they are, I know that every one of those decisions that are made are an incremental step along the way that could potentially lead him to a deep, deep love of God. See, and we have to recognize that God is going to use all of those choices. And we have to believe as parents in a big, big God. And not a little bitty God that's in control of the entire universe and in control of world affairs, but he just doesn't know my 14-year-old. Right? And that's kind of how we are sometimes. I trust God with Iraq. I trust God with North Korea. I trust God with aliens. Right? But man, has he seen my 7th grader's classroom? You know, has he seen those boys in there? And all of a sudden, it's like our big giant God becomes this impotent being. As if God has no idea what's going to happen in the outcome of your child and my child. See, we have to be very careful with that. We've got to learn to integrate a big giant God into the process of parenting. 
And like Larry Crabb said, realize that the pressure's off. See? And take that unhealthy, toxic pressure off of ourselves. Well, look here in Psalm 127. I just want to introduce this uh, first point. The process of preparing your children to leave their home. That is one of the main goals of parenting. Is I am getting Cooper ready to, uh, to leave the home. To be on his own. I'm going to hand him his canteen, 20 bucks, and say, Hasta luego, Padna. It's been a good 18 years. Give me a call once a week. Let me know how it's going. See, now if you're a mama, you think that's the, most, the worst thing I could possibly say. If you're a dad by that time, you're ready to drop, kick, and say, Enjoyed it. Good times. See you Christmas. All right. I remember, i got to tell you, I was... Uh, I was 14 years old. This is just the difference here. My mom and dad, they were the Norman Rockwell parents, right? You know, Norman Rockwell, I just saw all those pictures of just classic America, even though my mom's Greek. Uh, but mom is just the traditionalist. I mean, she's Greek European, and I mean, it is family, and it is home, and it is, you don't share anything about the home outside of the home. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's almost mafia-like, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the family, right? My dad was a 25-year career, uh, you know, military officer in the Navy. Uh, disciplinarian, authoritative. Uh, he, I think, laid a hand on me twice and never had to do it again. Would just look at me with red beams coming out of his eyes that would burn holes in me. And um, they, were, they were just very different in that sense. And I remember when I was 14, I was in the house, and my mom told me to do something. And I said to her, and I remember it was kind of half kidding, but half being 14. And I remember I, I said, I'll do it when I'm ready. And my dad was in the other room, which I didn't know, because I would <laughs> never have said that with father in the house, my, my dear father. And dad walks in the room, and I can't share exactly what he said, because it's on tape. Uh, but he looks at me. And he said, what did you just say? That's the edited version. And he said, you are looking at the queen of this house. He said, and you will never speak to the queen that way. He said, you get your suitcase, you pack your bags, and you better be out that front door in ten minutes. And I, was, and I knew he was serious. And my mom burst into tears, and she's holding on to my, my dad's name is Walter also, Grabs his arm and says, Walter, no, what are you doing? No, no, he didn't mean it. He was, no, no. And he said, pack them. And I'm crying now. I'm a 14-year-old tough guy. I'll do it when I'm ready, guy. Right? I'm bawling, getting my Samsonite out. Right? And uh, I open that thing up, and I mean, it's humiliating. I'm getting to my drawers, and I'm getting, you know, my, you know, Bionic Man's T-shirt and my... You know, getting all this stuff in there, my jeans. I'm packing my bag, and I had my suitcase, and I'm walking through the living room with my suitcase, and I look at my dad, and he points at the door. And, I, and I'm just crying, and Mom's falling. And I, and I open the door, and I open the screen door, and I shut it behind me, and I'm outside my house. And I'm standing there, and I set the suitcase down, and I just bulb. Because I didn't know where I was going to go. Joe Racina, uh, 
Brett Warnack, whose house am I going to go to, right? I had no idea, and I stood there for 20 minutes, and Mom's peeking out the side, you know, the, the thing, you know, just like Mom would do. And, uh, and when my dad went to the back, my mom comes in, and she says, go and ask your father's forgiveness, and tell him you'll never do it again, and ask him if you can come back to the house. And, uh, and I did it. And I went back there, and my dad said to me, he gave me, you know, my dad always gave me these life lessons. And he gave me this life lesson about authority and respect. And he said, son, he said, if it's between you and your mother, he said, it's not even a contest. He said, you'll be out of that house in no time flat. Uh, now, my dad also knew that that was his, the goal of parenting, not at 14. But he always knew that his goal was to get my brother out of the house, do his job. Um, but he was serious about that, that if you are going to if you're going to violate certain rules of order, in the home that he's established, then you're going to leave the home because these two things can't coexist. And I learned a lot about that, about parenting, about what that looks like. So Cooper's packed his bags three times since he's been born. And uh, it's kind of fun to do that. You might want to do that. So it's a, it's a, it's a kick. <laughs> that being said, verse 3 of Psalm 127. Sons, and in general, it's a, it's, a, it's a neutral term. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a, a reward from Him. Verse 4. Now, Ron, I think, has actually preached on this. Ron, you preached on this verse, haven't you, before? Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. And you see that the metaphor that the psalmist is using here of a child is like an arrow. And you know, there's really not a better metaphor a child than an arrow because there's a lot of things about an arrow that have to be true for the arrow to work and function that have to be true of a child now i wrote some of them down but i wanted to just kind of think out loud with you guys what name me something that has to be true of an arrow in order for it to function properly what's that okay there has to be a point right there has to be a sharp point for it to actually accomplish its goal okay what else there you go it has to be dependent on something else arrows are not self-sufficient are they they're always dependent on a bow but the bow is ultimately dependent on what yeah on the archer right there's ultimately you're in the hands of another right so yeah that's good what else there you go yeah the arrow has to be straight you guys ever try to shoot a uh, a curved or a bowed arrow that thing does one of these things when you let that thing go that thing has got to be home it's got to be crafted straight right what else there you go yeah there's got to be a target you got to know where you're shooting the thing right yeah that's right what else so what's that okay yeah well it's got to how about it's got to be let go right an arrow that's never let go is called a stick <laughs> all right it's not an arrow it's a stick uh you gotta you gotta let it go an arrow is designed to be let go right one more anybody the feathers yeah there's got to be other things connected to the arrow that help keep it in line right it's not just a plain stick with a point there's things that are going to help it uh, with drag and wind resistance that are going to keep that thing straight, right? 
So you look at these things, and it's kind of cool. If you guys actually, seriously, uh, want to have some fun, you ought to go to Starbucks. Um, they owe me money, man. I promote them around the country. Um, but you ought to sit down and with your spouse or somebody, um, your spouse preferably, um, you ought to sit down and say, hey, let's come up with 25 ways that a child is like an arrow. And really stretch yourself and challenge yourself. And then do an inventory of how are we doing on this. Um, we did that in seminary. When I went to Dallas Seminary, we had in one of our classes, we did a deal where we took, an, took the arrow motif. And we got to come up with a lot of ways. And it was a lesson on teaching how to apply a text. And, uh, and it was a blast. I mean, we got to number seven, and it was like pulling your hair out at that point. And we had to come up with 18 more um, on the thing. But it's, it's really fun to do. But that's an arrow. An arrow has to be crafted straight, right? You've got to spend the time that's required to craft it. But the most important part of the arrow, though, is the arrow has got to be let go. And some of you moms here, that's going to be the most difficult thing for, for you all to do at some point, is to actually really let it go. I mean, you may let it shoot, but you'll be flying with it, you know, <laughs> hanging on the arrow. And, uh, you know, dads are going to be prying the fingers off. It's all right, mom, mother, come on, let go. Uh, but you've got to let that thing go, you know, and let that thing be all by itself. But if you, if, you, if you can point it in the right direction and you've done all that you can to craft it correctly and you've got the right feathers on there and the right variables to help with its, its direction, then, like Proverbs 22 says, train up a child in the way it should go. And later, he will never depart. He will always return to the way that he was originally designed to go. See? And that's the idea of parenting. Now, is it possible to seemingly do everything right as a parent and to have a child go completely left? Does that happen? Yeah, they're called preacher's kids. And what's what happens? Uh... Honest, it's, that's a thought that goes through my head all the time. I can't tell you how many kids I knew that who's, who came from pastors, ministry families, and who just went through just um, really rough behavior through that. You know, and I think of that. You know, that what I what I have to do is I have to create this balance between normal life, right, and God, and not make my life be normal to him. See, my normal life is in the Bible every day, talking to people about whatever every day, uh, teaching all the time, traveling, doing this. That's my normal life, but that's not Cooper's normal life. And some of you who aren't even in the ministry, you've got to be careful that when you're crafting that arrow, that you don't smother what you perceive to be the spiritual Christian life and you smother that on the kid because that is going to cause a kid a lot of times to go and take a hard left. See, it's a balance between the two. Um, a just balance is pleasing to the Lord, the proverb says. See, and you have to learn how to create that balance and not over, over-spiritualize your kids too early. You know, I mean, it's great to hear kids memorizing Scripture. I mean, when Cooper comes home and tells me passages he's memorizing, I'm thrilled to death. You know, he just memorized Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 13. He just rips that thing out like there's no tomorrow. And... Uh, he wanted me to do it along with him, and he, he killed me. I'm still on verse 3. He's at 13. Um, I think that's great, see. But I have to be careful 
that I don't every day give them another verse for the day. Okay, Cooper, let's memorize Romans 6, 7, and 8 this week. Okay, and start really flooding him with my world. See, because the only one that's going to be able to do that is the Lord. And if I'm going to let him go like an arrow, if I'm going to send him on his way, I've got to make sure that when I craft my arrow, that there's a balance. Because an, an imbalanced arrow um, will not hit its target. So you need to ask yourself that question. Is there balance to my parenting? Is there an appropriate amount of spiritual development in my child? Am I really focusing spiritually on my child? Uh, do I pray with my child? Um, does my child ever see me on my knees in a, in a very humble position before God? Does my child see Christ as an ever-present daily part of my life? And then on the other side of that, um, does my child see me have fun and, and balance that out also outside of the whole spiritual domain? It's about balance between the two. And what happens is this. When you do it right and the arrow is crafted well, verse 5, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full because they won't be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Meaning that you may not make as much money as everyone else. You may not have a bigger house than everyone else. You may not have the newest model car than everyone else. Blah, blah, blah. But you, what you will have is you will have a child that you can boast on. Because this is a child that has... The arrow has been let go, and it is headed to its target. That, you know, what would you trade, what would you give for a godless child? If somebody came to you and said, hey, listen, I'll give you two brand new Mercedes for a godless child. Would you take it? Five brand new Mercedes. I'll give you a, I'll give you a mansion in Highland Park and two Porsche Carreras. Just give me one of your kids, and let's make them godless. Would you do it? That's, that's ridiculous, isn't it? It's foolish. And that's what the psalmist is saying here, is that the beauty of a child is that uh, you will be able to put to shame the enemies in the gate because you have, you have invested and crafted a child that is heading in the right direction. See? And that's the beauty of parenting, is the years that I have, I am crafting this arrow. And someday, we're going to let this thing go. And we're going to, with all of our prayers and all of the time we put in, we're going to hope that that, that arrow is going to go to its ultimate target. See? So that's a wonderful pro psalm for us right there to, to understand that. Number two, and I want to focus on this a little bit. Parenting is that process whereby the transformation of the parent is fundamental and the transformation of the child is secondary. Um, You've got to believe that. It's hard sometimes to believe that because what is it when we think about parenting that we really focus on a lot of times? What do we focus on? When you think parenting, be honest. Let's not get spiritual right now. When we think of parenting, what, what's that? Discipline. What else do you think about? Obedience. Right? Um, honor. Respect. Um, groveling when they sin before your feet. Um, these basic presumptions that you have, right, with your children. Um, but the reality is, you get into that situation, and, and I'll be honest, this is, this is something that I um, really have been applying in my life. I'm not, I'm not just speaking 
out of theory here. I do this. When I, when I get to that place with Cooper and I feel like I'm really being tested and I'm feeling that, that flooding, you know, what I'm, you know what I mean? You guys don't experience that, but sometimes you'll experience this emotional flooding where you just feel like you just are, are at the end. I catch myself. I stop. And I do say to myself at that moment, what is here for me? In this moment, what is here for me? Not, what's the next violent step I can take to get him to, to do that? It's, in this moment, there is a divine opportunity for me. See? And what that is, is, wow, this seven-year-old can push my buttons in such a way that I can feel like I'm about to rip my hair out? How does a seven-year-old have the ability to get you to want to rip your hair out? Honestly. They shouldn't. And if they do, then that's the divine plan. It's for you to recognize that my something internally within me is in such a condition that I can allow something like this to happen where I am about to rip somebody's head off, namely my husband, see, or wife, or whatever, or I'm just about to lose it. And I have to ask myself, why, um, why aren't I more patient here? Why do I feel so inflexible? Uh, why don't I have more grace in this moment? Uh, where is mercy in my life at this moment with this child, you see? And I have to begin asking these questions because it's through that now that the muscles that are inside of every one of us now have the opportunity for growth. What happens physiologically if you never stress out your muscles? What happens? Some of you know, sitting here, um, what happens if you never stress it out? The atrophy, right? So if, if you never stress them out, you get weaker, right? Um, emotions are the exact same way. That all of us have these emotional muscles. And what they do is they trigger things like patience and mercy and grace and kindness and all of these things. And all of us have different levels. It's like you go to the gym. Some of you have a greater ability to resist certain levels of weight. A person who can resist a lot more weight is usually because why? What have they done? They've been going to the gym. They've done stuff that has created enough stress on the muscle, and that's how a muscle grows is through stress, that they've created enough stress on the muscle that now the, the muscle grows. But has anybody here ever worked out really hard? And what does it feel like the next day? <laughs> yeah, sore. It's painful, right? And it's because you have put enough stress on that muscle that you flushed acid into the muscles and the muscles are sore because now they're at a point that they're about to do something that they've never done before. Grow. Right? And it's the same with children and us emotionally. That when I get to that point that I feel I'm about to break, if I allow myself to break and I don't do the internal step of asking myself the question about what is here for me in this moment, what happens is I never stress that muscle enough for it to grow. And I end up having the same impatient, inflexible, whatever you, put, you fill in the blank, uh, philosophy towards my parenting. As opposed to learning to embrace the stress 
and allow that to just allow you to go just a little bit further. Are you all with me on that? So stress, uh, believe it or not, is, is not only good, it's necessary. You have to have a stressful child. You do. A stressful child will make you more mature than an unstressful child. I promise you. Because that's what deepens the interior life of the individual. What does a person in life look like generally that's never been through any real hardship or stress in life? What's that? You guys ever had a conversation with them? How long does that conversation last? Talk about the cowboys and the rangers and what they bought at Nordstrom's that day and that's it. What do you do with the person who's been... You guys ever sat down with somebody that's been through stuff in life? Man, they've got the ability now to really go to level three and to talk about life and substance of things in life. And the reason is because their muscles internally have been stressed by life. See, and that's why if you've been given a child that really has felt like it's been a challenge to you, uh, praise the Lord. I mean that. Praise the Lord because you've been given this opportunity for deep internal growth. And listen, it's going to be tough and it's going to be painful and you're going to feel like you're just about to rip your hair out at times. But praise the Lord that you get this opportunity for growth. And if you don't see it that way, trust me, the alternative is much worse. The alternative is, I cannot believe my child is like this. What in the world is wrong with them? Are you listening to me? And all of a sudden, everything around you gets poisoned because of the way that you're viewing what parenting is about. And this is a common, common way that people parent, is they see the struggle and the difficulty of parenting, they see that as a nuisance and an inconvenience to their life. And so what you do is we all have our own methods for managing that. Some people end up becoming extremely authoritarian. And I mean, they drop the law. And all of a sudden, because the behavior has changed, what do they think they've now done? They think they've now accomplished successful parenting. Right? Have they? Is that the goal of parenting, is to manage your child's behavior for 18 years? Is that what it is? No. Now, if you think that's the goal, hey... I'll guarantee you every one of us in here can have really well-behaved kids in our home. You really could. If all the goal was is to get them to behave a certain way in the house, you have no problem doing that if you want to use certain methods and techniques. But you know as well as I do that's not the goal. The goal is to take that little heart that's in that little boy and that little girl and to recognize that that heart is longing for something and it's seeking it in all kinds of ways and God has given that child to you for you to discern how can I best craft the arrow of my child so that now when they get off on their own, they're not going off into life crippled emotionally. It's an exciting challenge. It's a humble challenge for all of us to have to go through. So there's three ba- I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because we're going to be done here in just a few minutes, in about 10, 15, 10 minutes or so. Uh, basically... Um, there's a wonderful book out there um, by, um, oh, the name, I'll come back to it. Um, but three fundamental needs of a child. Uh, these, these are the three fundamental needs. There's been a number of studies done on children and behavior and psychology of children. These are the three basic needs of a child. Number one is safety. Um, a child needs physical safety, 
And that also often is the easiest one to provide. A child needs emotional safety. You know what that is? That's the child's ability to come to mom and dad and to speak to mom and dad about how they're feeling. And it's the parent's job to teach a child how to do that. See? Not to stuff, not to bury, not to hold it in, not to turn away and, uh, and look at the window. I'll give you a great example. Yesterday, Cooper and I, um, we were leaving my parents' house, and there was, an, there was a TV show on. And I let them watch an hour of TV while we were there, and it was time to go. And I told them, Cooper, at this time we're going to leave. Okay, Daddy. All right, buddy. So right after that, his favorite show was coming on, which I had no idea about. Um, but Zach and Cody was coming on. Hate those kids. <laughs> so Zach and Cody's coming on. All right, Cooper, it's time to go. Daddy, Daddy, come on, just just five minutes. Which to a seven-year-old, five minutes is the whole show, right? And I said, No, no, Cooper. I said, What did I say? He goes, Daddy, just what? I said, What did I say? He said, One hour, and then we're going. I said, That's what I said, right? He said, yeah. I said, what did you say back to me? He said, I said, okay, Daddy. I said, what did you say? And that's how I do it all the time with Cooper. I ask him to reiterate everything that I said, what did you say back, and make sure that he understands that there has been proper lines of communication already done here. And we're not doing an audible here at the end. All right? And I go, what did you say to me? He goes, I said, okay, Daddy. And I said, what does okay, Daddy, mean? He goes... Fine. And so, you know, I turn off the TV. We get in the car. And listen, I don't expect him to be all of a sudden, you know, Peter Pan in the car and all, you know, Daddy, Father, you are so wonderful. You know, I, I don't expect that. I knew that we're about to carry this into the car, right? But he's not about to watch five more minutes. Because what did I say? One hour and we're going. Right, 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 right. We're in the car. And he's got this. He's got the seatbelt on. He does this. And I look at him. I said, you all right, buddy? I'm fine. And so I reach over to touch his shoulder, and he turns to the window. Right? Which I know is his way of not only letting me know he's upset, but letting me know I'm not going to let you have what I know you love to have so much, which is me. And I thought about that right then. Promise. Right then I thought, isn't that just like me with people close to me that hurt me? That I then pull away and I say to myself, I'm not going to let you have what I know you want so much. And I'm going to pull away and I'm going to shut down. And I realize that is what all of us do to some degree with people. We suddenly shut down and lock ourselves out of somebody because I'm going to make you feel what I feel. So he turns, and I saw that, and I just pulled my hand back, and I just said, Hey, buddy, if you want to turn away, that's fine. I'm not upset with you. But I want you to know that that's a choice you're making because your dad loves you. And if you want to turn away from me, then you can do that as long as you want, but I'm going to be right here and we can do whatever you want to go do now. Well, he stays turned, and within about 
it must have been 90 seconds. He turns and he goes, can we go to McDonald's and get an ice cream? I said, no way. No, I didn't. I said, yeah, we can. And all of a sudden his heart turned, you know, and today, um, leaving to come here, right? I'm getting some things done and, and, uh, he's doing something and I said, it's time to go. And, uh, and he looked at me and said, two minutes. I went, Cooper he says, okay, I'm just kidding. And he gets up and he came. See, and, and that's the way we have to be sometimes, isn't it? That you, you have to recognize that I have to create this safety with Cooper where I can allow him to be upset and I can't force him to feel a certain way. Now, I can demand respect and I can demand that he abides by his word. See, I can do that. But I'm not going to force his heart. I'm not going to reach out and touch him. I'm not going to try to, oh, buddy, come on. Because what do they do then? Stop it! And then you just, it gets worse. Now they're crying, you know. And I just let that you got to let them be where they are. And they got to feel like being with you is safe because I can feel whatever emotion I want to feel. That's what safety means emotionally. I can feel whatever emotion I feel and it's okay with you. You're not going to beat me down or get angry with me because I'm feeling angry or sad or disappointed. See, um, and that's one of the great needs of a child is y'all and me creating context for safety emotionally. And listen, it's true. If we do this well when our kids are young, when they get to be older, 14, 15, and now there's some real things they want to talk about, not Zach and Cody, but real stuff, now their ability to come to us um, is going to be much easier for them. Uh, I had dinner with a friend Thursday night. He and his wife, wonderful couple, but they have completely opposite parenting styles. They're in their mid-50s. Their kids are out of college. And she is an authoritarian. Um, and with her girls, I mean, it is, it is a hammer. right? With him, he's lets them know what he desires from them. But whatever choices they make, um, he's going to be right there by their side. They need to talk about him. And he was telling me about one of his daughters who came to him, and she confessed something to him that was, to any of us, would be pretty shocking. And she shared it all with him in detail. And I said, gosh, what did, what did her mom say? He goes, oh, my gosh, she wouldn't dare tell her mother. And I thought, man, I'm sure all through those growing up years, her mother felt like every time the girls were around her, they were well behaved. Right? Because the hammer was there. But the emotional safety, the, the, the soil wasn't there. And all of a sudden now, these kids are out of the house and they can't go to their mother to talk about something that was very significant that happened in her life. But she could go to her dad. Now I ask you, of those two, which was the successful parent? The one that seemed to be, at the outset, a little more lenient? Or the one that had the iron fist, but had things look exactly the way they wanted? See the point? The heart is the key. And we have to know how to create that safety zone with our kids. I used to tell Cooper, and I, I, in fact, I may start again now that I think about it. I used to tell Cooper, and he and I would lay down, you know, being a single parent, uh, as many of you know that I am, um, my time was a little more limited. And so at the, every night, I would have what was called free talk night. And every night I'd say, okay, buddy, it's free talk. 
You've got five minutes. You can say anything you want to me. You'll never get in trouble. I'm not going to punish you for anything. If there's anything you want to tell me, you can tell me anything you want. It's free talk. And sometimes he'd say, oh, I don't have anything, Daddy. And other times he would just start talking. You know. And what I was trying to do earlier was just try to get him to feel like he can share with me without any of the fear of Dad coming down on him. But just trying to develop that. The other thing is acceptance. Children have a fundamental need of being accepted. We get past that in the adult years, but children, that's a joke, by the way, um, children have this longing for being wanted and loved. And the reason is this, very easy, quickly. The reason is because when every child is born, they immediately become dependent on, on everything around them for their own security, right? And that never leaves because they start off with parents depending on parents. When they get old enough and now they don't have as much of a need for parents, who do they now turn to? Friends. And now I'm leaning on, on friends and now I don't have as great a need for parents. And then when I realize pa- friends can't totally fill me up, guess what I turn to now when I get a little bit older? The opposite, well, the opposite sex. Now it's like, okay, my parents haven't totally filled me. My friends haven't totally filled me. Oh, Wow. I've never felt this before. She totally fills me. Right? He totally fills me. And it's like crack at that point. And then you realize not long after that, he didn't totally fill me. (laughs) Right? She didn't totally fill me. And we spend the rest of our lives in this constant pursuit of acceptance, of needing to be needed. See? And that's a whole other talk there, but we have to recognize that this is one of the greatest challenges as parents that we're going to have to go through with our children. is teaching our children that nothing outside of themselves is going to ever ultimately fill and satisfy their lives. I'm already having these talks with Cooper. Uh, I think I may have shared the other day uh, at one of the other teaching sessions about us going to Target. And he saw a transformer. Right? And he says, Daddy, can I have it? And I said, no. Oh, Daddy, please. I said, no, Cooper, why do you want that? He goes, Daddy, because they're so cool, they turn into tanks. I, went, I said, Cooper, do you think that if you get that, that you will never want anything else again? He goes, no. And I said, and why is that? He said, because everything bores me, Daddy. That's what he said. Everything bores me. He's seven. Everything bores me, Daddy. And I said, and Cooper, why do you think everything bores you? And he, he goes, I don't know, it's just junk, Daddy. I get it and I play with it and then I get bored of it and I want something else. And I said to him, now he may not get this now, but he's going to hear this till graduation day. And I said to him, Cooper, everything bores you in this world because you weren't made for this world. You were made for another world. And if you always look for things in this world to make you happy and content, I said, Cooper, you will never find it. You understand? No. It's all right. You're going to hear it 13,000 more times. See? But that's the message. And finally, meaning. Every child and every person looks for this meaning. Uh, training up a child in the way they should go. Um, one Hebrew scholar actually makes the argument that that idea is that there's a bent that a child is designed to go in. Some of your children. Any of your children here um, artistic? They're really good at with art. Anybody here? couple of you yeah you want to train them up in that way you want to encourage that if they're totally artistic and they 
can barely put one foot in the other athletically, you don't want to throw them into, you know, baseball and force them to become one of the all-time great hitters of Little League. It's just not going to happen. And that whole mantra, you can be anything you really want to be if you really, really try, is a lie. It's not true. Um, I love that book. I think William Hendricks wrote it, Why You Can't Be Anything You Want to Be. It's just an honest assessment of how are you made, which, what, is, what is your way, what is your bent, and do I understand my child's bent? If my child is a B student, then that's what I expect, Bs. If my child is an A student and I see that they have that Phi Beta Kappa in them, which wouldn't come from their father, then I expect A's. See, I'm going to see where, how they are. I'm, not, I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to raise the bar, but I'm going to be content with the way that they are, you see, and try to rear them that way. I was thinking about this. One, one uh, philosopher made this point, and only a philosopher would think about this, but I think it's true. He was talking about the phenomena of why is it that a child, when you give them a video game, um, anybody played Wii? Seen the, yeah? Uh, great game. Um, Cooper just got this little uh, PSP that he just bought with his own money. He had a lemonade sale last Saturday in Houston, sold 117 $1 cups of lemonade. He made 117 bucks. Went and bought a PSP. His mom matched it, gave him 50, went and bought a PSP. Um, have you ever noticed how a child gets so lost in that world? You ever notice that? I mean, they're going at it, and they're in that world. Um, it's true for all kinds of things. Uh, you, get, you get kids that you give them certain dolls, and they decide to play. Let's play T. Right? And all of a sudden they, what do they do? Is it a random chaotic tea? No, it's, they add meaning and purpose. Right? And they get lost in this world. And the philosopher is making the point that every, every child in this world is born seeking meaning. And the reason they get so into video games is because the meaning is built into the game. And all of a sudden now I'm the guy killing everybody. Right? I'm... I can't even think of games today. I'm so out of touch with video games. I was about to say, I'm Donkey Kong. How bad is that? I'm asteroids, you know. Yeah, that's bad. But all of a sudden, you become the game, you see. And suddenly, the reason kids love it so much, he made the point, is because there's this, there's this self-defined meaning given to me now that I'm now that person, you see. And that's what that reflects. Everything in our life reflects something about the heart. And what we have to do is we have to somehow get our kids to not just exist, but we have to get them to see how they have been crafted and made and how meaning is a part of their life. See, that's what we have to do. i got 60 seconds. Roman numeral three. Four things that feed these needs. And then we'll be done. Number one. Order. Child needs order. There's got to be routine, ritual, monotony within the life of a child. Right? There's got to be that. There's got to be dinner at this time, sitting down. Have you seen those studies that have come out? Kids that have dinner at the same time at the dinner table with parents um, uh, four, four or more nights a week 
are kids that are more emotionally adjusted, adjusted than kids that don't. Have you seen those studies? Remarkable. Just the order and the routine of family meals together at night, which, you know, so many of us, it's easy to lose touch of that because you got Taco Bueno on the way home, right? And it's easy just to grab it, eat it in the car, run home, do your homework, jump in the bath, get to bed, and that's it. That's your routine. But there's got to be this order. There's got to be a structure that exists within the daily routine of the child. Uh, there's got to be physical touch. Uh, I make it a point, um, I'd say easily, easily, half the nights I have Cooper, I make it a point uh, that we get on my king-size bed and we have a wrestling match. And I do the bell, ding, ding. And man, we get up there and I bang his head on the ceiling fan while it's turning and we just have a blast, you know. And uh, it's pile on, and one, two, and he throws me off, you know, and then he jumps on me knees first, you know. And I can do that now, still barely, while he's seven. And when he's 13, that may be a little tougher for me to do that. Uh, but, man, I'm just physical touch with him, man. I just, I grab him, and I turn him, and I flip him, and I kiss him, you know. And then we'll, we'll do wrestling, and all of a sudden I'll pin him with kisses, you know. He's, Daddy, stop it, stop it. i do it again, Daddy, you know. And just tons of touch, man. Uh, when we go to Target, man, I just put my hand there. Give him the option. And I'd say 90% of the time he takes my hand. And I just hold his hand till we get to the toy aisle, toy aisle. And then, you know, he's over there. But touch. Lots of touch. See? Words of blessing and praise. I remember the guy that mentored me. He said something a long time ago before um, I had Cooper. And I, I always thought it was really profound. He said, try not to overpraise or overbless your kid for something he had no choice in. Meaning, if, he's, if he was born fast and he wins a race, don't praise him for his speed. Because he had nothing to do with that. That was a divine gift. You praise him for the work and the effort during practice that he did that allowed him to win. You don't praise for things they had nothing to do with. If, if your child is naturally smart... And makes A's with no problem at all. You don't continue to praise what geniuses they are. You praise them that as bright as they are, they still have such good study habits that they still read and they do all the work that they need to do. See? And, and, you, and you learn to praise your child regularly. And finally, and probably most importantly, uh, integrity has to be demonstrated. Uh, I remember my mom one time. I still remember it. I was younger and... My mom, uh, you know, being Greek European, my mom has always smoked. And um, it's just been a part of her culture, and she just never really got away from it. And she cuts back now just for health reasons. But I remember one day when I was a teenager, my mom, my mom was giving me the, the talk about why I should never smoke. Uh, you know, and then she goes out in the backyard and smokes. And, and when she did that, I remember just, I just thought, this is crazy. And she, she comes back in, I said, Mama, what in the world are you, are you saying, me don't smoke, and then you go smoke? And she said this, and I, I, I love the spirit of it, but it was just so bad at the time. And she said, you do as I say, not as I do. And I understood what she meant. I've got this thing that I can't kick, and I know she would love to if she could, if she could, but she hasn't been able to kick this thing. But that doesn't give you the excuse to go smoke. And that's what she meant by it. But I remember thinking, could you imagine a kid living with that kind of a philosophy? Which I didn't. That was one example there. But, you know, we have got to, to, to do what we say. So when we tell 
our children to share or go say you're sorry. You guys ever tell your kid that? Go say you're sorry. Um, do our kids ever see us do that? Do they ever see us in front of them go to our spouse and say, honey, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I wasn't listening when you were just now talking. Or I'm sorry I was short with you. Or to go to your kids and say, honey, you know what? I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. Could you say that again? Sorry, mommy was wrong. Daddy was wrong. I'm sorry. What were you saying, honey? Or they begin to see this idea of, of apologizing as a feature of when you say go apologize, they can now connect it to mom or dad apologizing. And now there's integrity. You know, like one guy said, the, the tongue in your mouth is in line with the tongue in your shoe. It's your words and your feet go in the same direction. You see, that's integrity. So whatever I say to my children, that's something that I'm doing as well. So in conclusion, the main emphasis tonight that I wanted to focus on was for us to recognize the divine work that God is doing in our hearts fundamentally by using our children to get us to be conformed into the image he wants us in, not fundamentally the image that we want our children in. Y'all with me? Um, and the other thing, of course, is what am I doing on a strategic, regular basis that's getting my child prepared to leave and to be autonomous, not needing mom and dad in the same way?